Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation. Uh, Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming George Selgin to Heritage uh, to talk about his new book, Floored, How a Misguided Fed Experiment Deepened and Prolonged the Great Recession. Uh, George is the director of the Cato Institute's Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. He is easily the best monetary scholar I've ever met uh, and the best one that I've ever read. Uh, I actually spent more than a decade in academia And I've never really met another scholar quite like George. Um, Never really met anybody quite like George, actually. But it's a good thing. That's a good thing. Um, He has an unparalleled command of history and theory. And although quantitative empirical work is not really his his thing or his comparative advantage, uh, he both appreciates and understands these tools, often better than some of the people who regularly use these tools. Most importantly, he's driven to always get things right. Uh, So reading his work almost always provides very useful insights. The seeds of this book, Floored, were planted about three years ago when George was asked to testify in the House about the Fed's balance sheet and interest on reserves. He'd been studying the issue for some time before that and writing about it for at least a year prior. Uh, And he was one of the very first, if not the first, to start drawing attention to the Fed's new operating framework uh, and its payment of interest on excess reserves. I'm not even sure if the Fed's new framework really had a name at that time. I don't know if everybody was really calling it the floor system at that point, but we are now. Um, Surprisingly, when he started down that road, uh, he came under heavy fire from some people who were supposedly friends, uh, many of whom were supposedly also thoughtful economists. Uh, And it went, I think, a bit too far. Many of those people publicly attacked George. But George didn't back down, and he kept pushing to get this stuff right. Uh, And I think he did. Um, Eventually, other people started taking note. George converted enough people that those early critics had to back down some. Um, So what we have now in this new book is, I think, easily the most careful and thorough look at the Fed's new floor system that you're going to find anywhere. And that's important because there are some very, very serious potential negative consequences of what the Fed has done. Uh, So that you can learn a little bit about these, uh, I'll be quiet, and if you would please help me welcome George Selgin. Oh my goodness, thank you Norbert, that was, uh, that may be the nicest introduction I've ever had. Uh, as, as, uh, As we're now more than 10 years away from the financial crisis. Uh, the talk these days is uh, no longer about 
policies to combat the crisis or anything like it. Rather, the talk is all about unwinding or undoing, reversing, if you will, the unconventional monetary policy steps the Fed took during 2008 and for some years afterwards. Now, uh, this, uh, this unwinding of unconventional monetary policy has, has three components to it, at least, two of which I think are familiar to everybody, certainly to, uh, I would think, to everybody in this room. One is a uh, uh, move back towards higher interest rates that has now been underway for some time, the conventional wisdom being that normal interest rates are closer to 3%, and by interest rates here I really mean the Federal Reserve target rate. A second well-known component that's been getting a lot of press lately, unfortunately some of it because it may stop, is the Fed's uh, ongoing reduction of the size of its balance sheet, which blossomed in the course of several rounds of quantitative easing in which it was, is supposed to be reducing again and has been reducing, but perhaps will not keep on redu reducing for very long. The third component of unconventional monetary policy, the one that doesn't get that much attention and that isn't familiar to that many people, was the Fed's switch in October 2008 to a new operating framework, that is a new framework for regulating the stance of monetary policy. And it's that framework that I refer to and that's more generally known as a floor system of monetary control. My, my purpose today is uh, to discuss how the change to a floor system came about, to talk about the bearing of that change on the progress of the subprime crisis and subsequent recovery, and finally to argue that the Fed needs to include amongst its, uh, 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 its normalization uh, programs, uh, a return to the pre-floor system of monetary control, a system that I'll refer to as a corridor rather than a floor system of monetary control. So those are the things I hope to, to do in, in the course of this talk. Now, uh, pardon me for being a slide behind, but you've heard it so you don't need to, need to see it. Uh, we all know now, of course, that in 2008, the U.S. economy was uh, uh, in the midst of what was rapidly becoming the Great Recession, the recession that we now know officially dates from December 2007. And it was in 2008, though, that that recession truly became great, especially towards the end of 2008. We know that now, but... At the time, people didn't know it. That is, in 2008, they didn't know it. And what you may no longer recall is that the thing that people were most concerned about, certainly at the Federal Reserve in those days, wasn't a recession. It was inflation. Inflation had uh, uh, crept up above what was then uh, the Fed's unofficial 2% target. It later became an explicit target, but it was already an implicit one. Inflation had been 
creeping above that target starting in the spring of 2008 and stayed above it for uh, the much of the rest of the year, certainly until the fall. And that's core inflation. Headline inflation had risen and was continuing to rise even more. And this caused many Fed officials to be concerned that monetary policy was either too tight or in danger of becoming, I'm sorry, too loose or in danger of becoming too loose. But that fear presented Fed officials with a very serious problem because although nobody thought that there was a recession yet going on, they did know that the financial system was having lots of problems. The decline in real estate prices was already causing losses amongst many financial firms, and uh, the Federal Reserve was taking steps to try to prevent panic from breaking out. Consequently, it was engaging in a fairly substantial, a fairly, fairly substantial degree of emergency financial lending, emergency lending to various financial institutions. There were uh, an alphabet soup of different uh, lending programs. Now, why did that pose a challenge? Well, emergency lending, other things being equal, creates more reserves. More reserves, other things equal, means a looser stance for monetary policy under the old operating regime, at least. And that was a problem because the Fed was worried that this emergency lending would cause it to contribute to a worsening of inflation it was very anxious to avoid. So the challenge for the Fed was to be able to go on engaging in this emergency lending to shore up the financial system without fueling any more inflation. Particularly, the Fed wanted to stick to what was then a 2% target it had set for the federal funds rate, which is the rate of interest banks pay to borrow reserves from each other overnight. And that rate is what the Fed uses as its as a guide to the stance of monetary policy. Basically, it picks a value for that overnight rate that it thinks is consistent with meeting its inflation and dual mandate targets and tries to regulate reserves so as to keep the actual Fed funds rate near the target level. So what does it do to avoid the reserve creation it's undertaking in connection with emergency lending to avoid having that contribute to falling below its 2% target or causing inflation to rise much more above its 2% target? What it does at first was something called sterilization of lending. The Fed had a portfolio that, though not very large by today's standards, still was close to about $900 billion, and it mostly consisted of Treasury securities. So as the Fed made emergency loans, it offset that uh, lending by selling Treasury securities from its portfolio so that the portfolio overall did not get bigger, and that meant that there were no there was no net increase in fed assets or liabilities including reserves and that's what you see in this picture that that's in front of you the dark line shows the total fed assets and uh you can see how uh the blue line which shows its holdings of treasury securities is falling the difference though consists of increased emergency loans 
so that on balance, the two changes, the increase in lending and the decline in reserves, offset each other. So the Fed is able to avoid adding to reserves because of its emergency lending and thereby unwantedly stimulating the economy and uh, contributing to what they fear would be even greater inflation. Now, that's all well and good until the events of September 2008. As you all know, Lehman Brothers failed. And consequently, to prevent a run on AIG, which that failure threatened to provoke, the Fed ratcheted up its emergency lending substantially. At the same time, it had reduced its treasury holdings to a level that it felt it couldn't go further below. So sterilization of lending was no longer an option for preventing that lending from giving rise to a net increase in bank reserves and an unwanted easing of monetary policy. Uh, And by the way, yes, the Fed was still worried about overly easy monetary policy even after the failure of Lehman Brothers. It's hard to believe now, but it was the case then. So they had to come up with some new way of preventing their emergency lending now on a much larger scale from resulting in an overall easing of monetary policy. And that was when they latched on to the idea of paying interest on bank reserves, which would ultimately lead to the switch to a floor system of monetary control, although such a switch was not specifically what they were thinking of doing. They were not expressly aiming at doing it. So interest on reserves. The Fed had actually been granted permission by a 2006 law, the uh, uh, financial, uh, what's it called, uh, financial, something like Make Life Easier for Banks Act of 2006, that, uh, that gave authority for the Fed to pay interest on reserves at, uh, here's the act, Financial Services Regulatory Relief Act, uh, at, uh, at uh, modest rates, uh, and uh, that was done in 2006, but it wasn't to take effect until to sometime in 2011. What the Fed did in October 2008 was to realize that if it could get this permission implemented at once, if it could accelerate the implementation of this authority, then it could use interest on reserves not for its originally intended purpose, which was just to make reserve holding of reserves less onerous to banks, but it could use interest on reserves to make reserves so attractive that banks not only wouldn't suffer by holding reserves, but they would actually want to hold as many reserves as they could get their hands on. And that is what happened with the passage of the Economics Stabilization Act of 2008. The Federal Reserve That act, among its other provisions, accelerated the implementation of interest on reserves, allowed the Fed to put it in effect immediately, essentially, in October 2008, whereupon the Fed, after stumbling around a little bit for a few, uh, a week or two, finally set the interest rate on reserves above prevailing interest rates, not only the prevailing Fed funds rate, but other short-term rates, the idea being to make reserve holding and the holding of excess reserves, in particular reserves above the legal minimum requirement, attract so attractive to banks because of the higher return on reserves relative to returns on other assets 
that banks would, instead of using any reserves that came their way, would just hold on to them, would simply hoard them. And that change from a system in which banks tended not to hold any excess reserves, they would tend, where they tended to use any reserves to make loans to other banks or to acquire other assets, to a system where banks were paid enough on reserves to make reserve holding itself more attractive than using reserves, that was a switch from a corridor system to a floor system of monetary control. And, and the reason it amounts to a new system of monetary control is uh, something that uh, is easy enough to see once you think about how, monetar- how the Fed adjusted or controlled interest rates before and how it has to do it now. This chart helps to explain that. On the left, you see uh, an illustration of the old Fed operating system, the pre-2008 operating system, a a version of a so-called corridor system. In that arrangement, no interest was paid on reserves, though in in general, in a corridor system, there can be interest on reserves. It just has to be below the Fed's desired target. Since reserves, reserves are also scarce, that is, you're in a situation where banks don't have a lot of excess reserves. They're not holding them because it's not desirable. In that old arrangement, the way the Fed influenced interest rates and met its desired target federal funds rate was by changing the supply of reserves. The Fed could either reduce the supply of reserves, making them more scarce, and as you can imagine, uh, on that uh, left-hand diagram, imagine that supply schedule, which is the stock of the Federal Fed Reserves, which is like the size of its balance sheet, more or less. If that shifts, if that's shifted to the uh, to the right, to the left, sorry, if that's shifted to the to the left, your left, then that's going to result in a higher interest rate. So the Fed reduces the supply of reserves, and the Fed funds rate should go up the rate at which banks lend to each other. On the other hand, if it adds reserves, the rate should go down. And that's why back in October, the Fed was worried because it was creating reserves that would put downward pressure on the rate and that would make monetary policy easier and it didn't want to do that. In the new system, interest is paid on reserves at, at, at the Federal Reserve's desired target rate or even above that desired target rate. That means that banks will hold on to any reserves that come their way, and if the Fed adds enough reserves to the system, they'll be sitting on plenty of reserves more than they need. Marginal changes in the supply of reserves won't have any effect on marginal interest rates because as reserves come into the system, instead of banks using them to make other loans, which would lower interest rates, they sit on that many more reserves. You're on the flat part of the reserve or federal funds demand schedule. So to sum that all up in a few words, under the old system, the Fed achieved its targets for monetary policy by adding to or subtracting from the supply of reserves. Under the new system, changing the supply of reserves at the margin has no effect on the stance of monetary policy. The only way the Fed can influence monetary policy is by changing the interest rate it pays on reserves. That'll move the 
flat part of that schedule up or down on the schedule on the right. Did I just lose a bunch of people? So anyway, that's the new system of monetary control. By the way, in, in principle, in principle, that you can have any monetary policy stance, the Fed can have a, any monetary policy stance it wants with either system. In principle. It can set the interest rate target anywhere it wants with either system. So it shouldn't have to have either def- too much deflation or too much inflation with either of these systems if it sets up the right target. In practice, though, particularly in 2008 and afterwards, the Fed used a floor system, as we'll see, as a, as a means for maintaining what turned out in, to be, in retrospect, a much too contractionary monetary policy. Okay. So let's talk about some of the consequences uh, of this switch in 2008 to a floor system. There are several very important ones, and they, in a way, anticipate what I regard as the problems and the drawbacks of maintaining a floor system going forward. These, These consequences include the fact that, first of all, there's no interbank market. The federal funds market ceases to operate as, an, as, an, as a market in which banks lend to other banks to make up for reserve shortages of those other banks or to dispose of reserves that banks don't want. The second consequence I'll talk about is that, as we've already, as I've already mentioned, Fed asset purchases, Fed open market operations have no don't have the usual effect on interest rates that they would have in a corridor, and that means that they don't have the usual stimulus effect they would have in a corridor system. A third consequence is that the Fed ends up playing a much bigger role in the overall allocation of credit as its balance sheet becomes larger relative to the balance sheets of financial of private financial institutions, more credit in the economy is, is allocated to the Fed through banks holding more reserves at the Fed, and that means that the Fed is playing a greater part deciding where this credit ultimately goes and what markets and what securities are being funded by. And all of these things, I submit, are unfortunate consequences, not desirable ones, of a switch to a floor system. So let's talk about the interbank market. Uh, this again, the Fed, this, I'm talking about the Fed funds market. It's what's known as an unsecured, uh, market because no collateral is used. Banks are lending to other banks without collateral, so it can potentially be risky, though most of the loans are just overnight. Before 2008, before October 2008, Reserves were scarce, and there was a lot of activity on the Fed funds market in the order of about $200 billion of of trades per day. And that's because with scarce reserves, with banks holding as few reserves as possible, many frequently ran into situations where unless they borrowed at the end of the day, they risked falling below their minimum legal requirements for reserves. So banks faced with that situation would go into the Fed funds market and find other banks that ended the day with a surplus of reserves, with some excess reserves, and they would pay the federal funds rate to borrow from those banks overnight. 
In this way, a very limited supply of reserves and a very low level of overall excess reserves in the banking system still allowed the banks to handle all their payments and meet their statutory reserve requirements. It was a very efficient system because though there were few excess reserves, they could easily be transferred to wherever they were needed at any time through this market. After the switch to the floor system, of course, two things happened. One is that banks that have excess reserves are no longer willing to part with them by lending on the Fed funds market or otherwise. The second is that there are plenty of excess reserves in the system after the various expansions of emergency lending followed by quantitative easing. Therefore, most banks, or at least many of them, never find themselves short of reserves and so have no inclination to borrow federal funds. A result of this is that as a market for interbank unsecured lending, the federal funds market more or less ceases to exist. As you can see in this chart, the volume of lending eventually falls to about a quarter of what it was before, about $50 billion. It's stayed there ever, ever since. Uh, you may wonder, though, about that $50 billion. Why is there any activity at all? That's because there are financial institutions that keep Fed balances but don't earn any interest on reserves, particularly Fannie Mae. And uh, these institutions are still in the habit of lending their excess reserves to banks that can qualify for the interest in return for a share of that interest. So instead of having interbank lending on the overnight market, which is pretty much all you had in the old days, you have lending to banks by GSEs, not interbank lending. It turns out that matters because I'm going to argue later on it's interbank lending on this unsecured market that one needs to, one should want to preserve for because it's it's healthy for the economy. So I'll get to that. By the way, a lot of people uh, are inclined to think that the collapse of interbank federal funds lending was a result of panic during the crisis, firms being afraid to lend to other firms in an unsecured market. There was some truth to that at first, but not for very long. And that's because a week after interest on reserves went into effect, there was uh, uh, the Fed uh, adopted the so-called temporary liquidity guarantee program, that is the government passed this uh, program, that guaranteed all kinds of things. It raised deposit insurance coverage to 250000 but it also guaranteed lending on the interbank market, on the Fed funds market. So risk was no longer a factor after that. And of course, since then, panic has long since subsided, yet that market is still uh, not very active. Interest on reserves is what explains the the ultimate decline in activity there. Well, by November 2008, Fed officials, of course, uh, uh, were no longer worried about inflation. They had come to realize, as we all know now, that the economy actually badly needed stimulus, and monetary stimulus in particular. Uh, and that, of course, meant that now they not only weren't worried about excessive stimulus effects of reserve creation leading to inflation, they wanted to avoid deflation by 
creating reserves. And so that month in November, they started to discuss what the program that eventually came to be known by most of us as quantitative easing. But here's the irony. With quantitative easing, which doesn't actually begin for some months later, the Fed is now intentionally going to be adding to total bank reserves. It's going to be intentionally creating reserves, not creating them incidentally as a result of emergency lending. But it still has a floor system in place. And remember, it set that system up with interest on reserves so that reserve creation would not stimulate the economy. So we have a very, very strange situation where now the Fed wants to stimulate the economy, but it does not want to get rid of the floor system to stop paying lucrative interest on reserves. The result of this is that now it'll create a lot more reserves, many, many more reserves, trillions of dollars of reserves, but those reserves will also tend to pile up. And yet... They want to stimulate. There was among, uh, there is in the literature on floor systems this argument in their favor that goes something like this. In the old corridor system, the Fed had to adjust its balance sheet with the stance of monetary policy in mind, because if it either created more reserves or reduced the supply of reserves, that would change the stance of policy. So its interest rate target and it's the size of its balance sheet, those were related variables, intimately related. Bigger balance sheet, other things equal, a lower interest rate. In the floor system, the size of the balance sheet is no longer a determinant of the stance of the monetary, of monetary policy. So in principle, the Fed can make completely independent choices about how big its balance sheet is on one hand, and what interest rate target it wants to set on the other, which it sets through IOER. And proponents of the floor system said, this is wonderful, because now the Fed has more freedom to manipulate two tools, two different variables, whereas before they were connected. But in fact, that divorce of the stance of monetary policy from the size of the balance sheet can be seen as a severe drawback And the way I'd like to make that clear is with the following analogy. We all know that when you drive a car, you have several controls, two of which are the steering and the throttle. But we also know, some of us from hard experience, that not all combinations of throttle and steering are sustainable, right? If you're going fast enough, you can't turn the wheel really hard without getting into bad trouble. But wouldn't it be nice to have a car that was so designed that you could control, set the throttle any way you like, step on the gas as much as you like, and set the steering wheel as hard left or right as you like without getting into any trouble. So you, these variables become independent things you can adjust any way in, in any combination. Well, it is possible to do that. All you have to do is put the car in neutral, right? Now you can stomp on the gas, and you can turn the wheel. Those variables can be changed in all kinds of combinations. That's the good news. The bad news is the car doesn't go anywhere. Similarly, in a floor system, 
Yes, it may be good news in some sense that the Fed can expand its balance sheet a lot and at the same time can hope can achieve any interest target it likes through interest on reserves and can try all these different combinations. But, as in the case of the car, the problem is that in a floor system, the, the monetary met transmission mechanism, as it were, is in neutral. That is, the Fed can step on the gas, on the balance sheet gas all at once, on the reserve creation gas, while not risking missing whatever inflation target it sets through IOER, but stepping on the gas doesn't stimulate the way it does in the old system. Increasing the balance sheet doesn't result in more reserves, that it, more Fed balances that banks can use to stimulate more lending on the interbank market or anywhere else. So that's the situation that Fed officials had put themselves in. Are we, how many? Ten minutes. Okay. Uh, and as a result of this, as the Fed created reserves in several rounds of quantitative easing, banks just accumulated a like amount of excess reserves, in a sense, in essence, doing nothing with them. So you had this vast increase in cash piling up in the system, and, and effectively the economy was in, in what some economists would call a liquidity trap. Normally, you'd worry about the economy being in a liquidity trap if you lowered interest rates to zero and you couldn't get them any lower. But in this case, what we have is a liquidity trap that's quite artificial. The, the, uh, the, the uh, interest rate on reserves sets a lower boundary for where the interest rate can go, and no amount of reserve creation is going to make the Fed funds rate go below it. And this is the situation we're in. So monetary policy of the usual, in the usual sense, monetary stimulus in the usual sense, give the banks more reserves, they'll use them, there'll be more lending, there'll be more spending, there'll be more inflation and more employment. That transmission mechanism no longer operated in the new regime. So... And, and that's the basis, uh, that is the basis for Bernanke's now, I think, famous quip that the problem with quantitative easing is it works in practice but doesn't work in theory. Because in theory, if the banks aren't doing anything with reserves you create, then they aren't stimulating the economy using those reserves. But Bernanke claims it worked in theory. In fact, uh, this is the funny thing about what happened between October and November 20, uh, uh, 2008. In October, the floor system was set up to prevent reserve creation from stimulating the economy. By November, reserve creation is the Fed's plan for stimulating the economy with a floor system. So what's new? What's new is a bunch of new theories about how quantitative easing will work, even though it can't work according to the old theory. Well, the results of, of quantitative easing in practice are actually quite controversial. I don't want to go into any detail about it, except to say that many studies that claim that quantitative easing was effective focus on its effects on long-term interest rates, and those effects were substantial. What those studies do not show is that that translated into very substantial improvements in employment or inflation which is what we really should care about. 
not whether they reduced interest rates. Okay, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. As I said, one of the consequences of the switch to the floor system was that the Fed becomes a much bigger player in credit intermediation. This is simply a, a matter of balance sheet mathematics to begin with. This chart shows that before 2008, lending of all kinds by commercial banks is practically 100% of uh, deposits. They're using almost all their deposit resources to make loans. The two things move hand in hand. After interest on reserves, lending of all sorts falls to only about 80% of bank deposits. And that's matched by an increase in excess reserves from close to zero as a percentage of deposits to 20%. So this is a change in the bank's balance sheet. Its counterpart is a change in the size of the Fed relative to the size of the commercial banking system. And here you can see a chart showing the vast increase in the Fed's role. The Fed is, instead of being just a lever that is determining the overall scale of the financial system of, of financial intermediation of lending and investment, now has become a big player in that whole intermediation process with a lot of banks using available resources to lend, not to private borrowers of various kinds, businesses, consumers, etc., but to actually lend to the Fed, which is what banks do when they accumulate reserves. So we have a very different kind of animal in the Federal Reserve System under this new regime, uh, an animal with a big foot credit footprint. Now, uh, one of the most controversial questions connected to what I've just been pointing, the facts I've just been pointing out is whether, in fact, this new floor system discouraged bank lending very much. At... Uh, uh, at one point in 2015, in 2016, Bernanke and Cohn said, well, it's only affecting loans at interest rates between 15 and 25 basis points and zero because the interest rate on reserves had been set at only 25 basis points. But you can easily do a, I did a thumbnail com, uh, calculation to show that actually there's a lot of loans involved in that little space. Because if you take risk into account and also non-interest expenses of bank lending, it turns out that it's easy to show that a bank might be faced with the prospect of making a loan at nine and a quarter percent and wouldn't end up making as much profit from that as it could by holding on to reserves that yield 25 percent when you take risk and other factors into account. Okay, I'm going to skip ahead. Most of this has to do with the effects of uh, uh, what I see as the adverse consequences of, of the floor system in the past. Let me quickly summarize the reasons why I think the Fed should seriously consider going back to a corridor-style corridor system uh, uh, in the future. One is that <clears throat> a lean balance sheet means fewer opportunities for inefficient financial intermediation fewer opportunities for uh, waste of resources because banks are lending too much to the Fed and not enough to others. A second reason for going back to a floor system is we revived the unsecured interbank lending market, and that's very important for reasons I'll point out in a moment. The third is that a corridor system, sorry, uh, is that a floor system exposes the Fed to pressure to monetize debt. 
I'm going to go quickly past the lean balance sheet point, except to point out to you, as this slide shows, that until 2008, the Board of Governors itself said that a lean balance sheet was one of the most important elements of Fed policy, that their job was not to be an active participant in the intermediation of funds, but just uh, provide controlling the stance of monetary policy with as small a balance sheet as possible. And they seem to have, Fed officials seem to have forgotten that whole philosophy over the course of time. By the way, if we stick to our present plan, even if we stick to our pre- the Fed's present normalization plan, its balance sheet is probably never going to go below $3 trillion, which is much larger than the $900 billion or so before the crisis. And now it's beginning to look as if the Fed could stop contracting its balance sheet before it even gets down to $4 trillion, if you believe reports in the press. The second point, very quickly, and then I'll be over, uh, be done, uh, this and one more point. Now that you have a floor system with the stance of monetary policy divorced from the size of the Fed's balance sheet, that balance sheet becomes a political hot, a, a plaything, a football. Think about it this way. In the old days, if the government, the Treasury, or anybody said to the Fed, why don't you monetize our assets? We could use some more money. The Fed could say, well, we can't do that because if we monetize too much stuff, we'll miss our targets, we'll violate our mandate. The size of our balance sheet is the principal determinant of the stance of monetary policy. So, sorry, can't do it. That excuse no longer works. It's literally the case now that if someone, say the Treasury, said to the Fed, we want you to buy up a lot more debt because we need it to finance big deficits, the Treasury could not point to how inconsistent that would be with meeting its mandate. That's a very dangerous political situation, and it goes hand-in-hand with the way floor systems of monetary control work, something Charles Blosser has written about quite eloquently. Finally, the interbank market, I keep saying that not having that unsecured market matters. That's not just my opinion. Here are two economists writing in 1996, one of whom has since won the Nobel Prize, saying that any intervention that discourages interbank monitoring destroys the very benefits of a decentralized banking system. Interbank monitoring happens when banks deal with each other routinely in unsecured credit markets like the Fed funds market. That market gave banks a strong incentive to police each other, to know their counterparties, and that in turn meant that contagion effects, where panic spreads indiscriminately among different banks, were contained by the fact that banks were always uh, uh, familiar with the counterparties that they dealt with. Now you don't have that important information about bank-specific risk that comes with having an active interbank market. So uh, I'll just conclude uh, by saying I think the floor system, the switch to the floor system during 2008 had uh, went hand-in-hand hand with some very unfortunate contractionary policies. But I think that going forward, the more important concerns about a floor system aren't necessarily that it's going to cause too much contraction, that it's going to cause tight money. That's not necessarily the case. What it will do, though, is cause the Fed to have too big a role in credit allocation. It'll kill interbank monitoring going forward, 
and it'll subject the Federal Reserve to all kinds of fiscal pressures that it may not easily resist. Thanks very much. Yeah. Oh, does somebody have a question? Yeah, sir. Thank, thank you very much. This is very informative. Um, did um, does does the this may be just a skew from where you are? Does it, does the nature of the of the of the of the makeup of the balance sheet play into this? We see in the paper right now that they're basically going to maybe wrap this up or you know, the direction. Um, <clears throat> look over the time, the length of the. Uh, period on the assets that they're holding. How, how does that play into this? It's very important because it, uh, in fact, uh, is an important factor in the distortion of, of, of intermediation, distortion of markets I was alluding to before. So when the Fed engaged in quantitative easing, it loaded up on long-term assets, particularly mortgage-backed securities and long-term treasury securities. And um, and superficially, that just meant, okay, you had all these securities in the open market. Now they're on the Fed's balance sheet. Before you had the holders of the securities, the private holders, they were funding the agencies and the treasury. Now the banks are funding them instead. But that's, it's not as simple as that. It's not as simple as that because, first of all, by buying all these assets, the Fed also reduced the marginal funding costs of, of the issuers of the assets. So there's a, uh, a stimulus effect that's particularly favoring those issuers. But the more important point is the Fed now has a, a, a very risky balance sheet. It's got a lot, lot of so-called interest rate or duration risk. If interest rates rise, that will mean that the uh, value of the securities on the Fed's books fall. Now, if those securities were still held by private in the private market, those risks would be borne by the person who are persons holding the securities, and they, you know, if they're rational people, they know the risk when they buy the securities, and their decisions to invest in them are informed by that possibility. But what the Fed does when it buys these same securities is to trans to uh, transfer the risk. From not not to itself, but to the general public, the taxpaying public, because in, when interest rates rise and the security values fall, what that ultimately means is the Fed remits less money to the Treasury. The Fed doesn't go broke. The Fed doesn't suffer. The Treasury suffers. Therefore, taxpayers suffer. But they're not the ones who've made the decision to invest in these securities. So you have a breakdown between the decision to fund certain assets and the bearing of the risk associated with funding those assets, that's the kind of distortion that a floor system can result in. Now, if the Fed just stuck to short-term treasuries in maintaining this, in having a huge balance sheet, these problems wouldn't be as severe. But in general, you do have a, a, a greater risk of distortion in the financial system. Does that answer your question? Thanks. So in 2008, the there was new information that came out that raised question about the value of 
securities being held on financial institutions' balance sheets. Uh, and that raised questions about the solvency of many financial institutions. Yeah. Do you think that a floor policy would be appropriate for cases where the Fed is concerned about the solvency of financial institutions and wants to make sure that there are sufficient reserves on their balance sheets? I think that that uh, the, my answer to that is that that although it's desirable to deal with financial insolvencies and, and uh, uh, illiquidity, uh, the foremost desire of the monetary authorities during any kind of crisis or panic should be to make sure that the economy as a whole remains sufficiently liquid, that we don't see uh, damage spread from the financial system to the economy as a whole, as can happen, of course, if spending generally collapses. So uh, that brings me to your question about the floor system. It's true that with a floor system, the Fed can inject reserves into the economy and can inject vast amounts without uh, altering the stance of monetary policy. That sounds great if you want to add to system liquidity. The problem is that if you set a, an interest rate on reserves sufficiently high to allow a switch to a floor system, you may be committing yourself to a monetary policy stance that's too tight to avoid a recession for the economy as a whole. And I think that's exactly what the Fed did. That... Uh, that begs the question, of course, uh, how could the Fed create reserves uh, otherwise? How could it enhance system liquidity? And the answer is that if you're in such a bad situation where you really have to bolster up bank balance sheets and you can't do it by uh, uh, fiscal policy, which, of course, is one uh, another alternative, uh, that's a, that is using fiscal policy to see to it that of that once you supply efficient liquidity to the economy as a whole, the financial system gets a nice chunk of that, then um, it may be necessary, after all, to resort to a floor system. But the time to do so is only in the extreme case where you can't get interest rates down any lower. So there was one point I didn't make that was on my last slide. If you have a corridor system, that system will automatically turn into a floor system in extreme cases. And those extreme cases are precisely when you've driven interest rates down as low as they'll go with reserve recreation. And then they hit a natural bottom, which could be zero. Maybe it's a negative number. At that point, when they won't go any long, lower, no matter how many reserves you can create, when they reach their material, the interest rates have re reached their material lower bound, zero otherwise, you're in a floor system. And so to critics who say uh, the floor system can be necessary sometimes, I say, yes, you're right. But the only times it's necessary and desirable is when you have no choice, in which case your corridor system will take you into a temporary uh, – become a temporary floor system. But in those cases, you never want to have a floor system with positive interest rates above their natural lower bounds – because all that means is you're not loosening as much as you could to combat the recession. 
Right. So, so I'm not even strictly speaking. Therefore, I'm not against a floor system. I'm for a floor system when you when you have no choice. And I say, at all other times, being in a floor system can only interfere with combating recession. It can never help. David Burton, the Heritage Foundation. Uh, one of the more interesting slides to me in your presentation was one you went through really quickly where you basically said that uh, you, a plausible uh, loss ratio was 5%, mm -hmm. and then the cost of providing the financial intermediation services was 4.5%, so they would have to achieve a rate of 9.5% uh, plus to be comparable to the reserves which addresses one of the central questions I've had about this analysis. My, my question to you is, and, and you, you said that, that, you know, they were reasonable. What, what evidence do we have or what data sources did you use to arrive at those numbers? Because obviously they're fairly high. Yeah, well, you can, there are statistics that show the, uh, the um, uh, default rate risk or loan loss reserves as a percentage of bank assets over time. So you can treat that size of the loan loss reserve as an indicator of the perceived default risk that banks face. So that's where I got that number. And it was, I mean, it was very high in 2010. Right? That's, that's not typical. They're more like 1% or 2% in good times, but back then they were much higher. And that other statistic I got from, from the literature on bank, bank management and, uh, that talks about the costs of a typical loan. So the 4% figure, that, that isn't a result of bad times. That's actually a fairly standard figure of the uh, non-interest related expenses of, of administering a small business loan as a percentage of the loan. So the, the point is, that if you say to somebody, oh, banks are only not making loans that they would only make 25 basis points on, most people think, okay, how many, there are plenty of loans out there where, that pay more than 25 basis points. Uh, but that's misunderstanding the importance of, of, uh, that 25 basis points because it's, the interest on reserves at 25 basis points is pure profit, pure profit, which is why a lot of banks are tempted by it. Because any other use of their resources, they have many expenses to offset against whatever the interest return is, and they don't have those with the interest on reserves. They may have some balance sheet expenses for holding reserves, but that's all. FDIC uh, premiums, for example. And foreign banks famously don't even have to pay those premiums, so they don't have that, if that cost. That's why a lot of the excess reserves are held in branches of foreign banks third to a half. One more question. Oh. Did you have a question? He was just signaling that there's one more question. There's one in the back here. James Bullard of the St. Louis Fed recently released an article where he talked about how the years following the recession, the Fed was continually wrong about projected interest rates like year after year, that they would converge at a single point. And he offered this idea that the economy actually operates in like state, like different states or regimes that can end up in different long-term, long-run outcomes. 
And so my question to you is, like, do you think the failed policy of the Fed following 08 reflects a deeper misunderstanding of the nature of our economy? Wow. Um, that's certainly uh, an intriguing question. I'm not sure of the answer. I, 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 I really think, and maybe this is only a superficial view, but I really think the fundamental error was uh, not understanding that in, the inflation rate is a poor signal of the stance of monetary policy, particularly the headline inflation rate, which seems to be what a lot of people on the FOMC were looking at. Now, we have to understand, and this is very important, that the FOMC is a committee. So it's, there's not one single mind that's getting things wrong. There were people on the committee arguing that the Fed should lower its interest rate target, which is to say should ease monetary policy despite the inflation numbers. And then there were hawks arguing just the opposite, that the Fed needed to ratchet up its, uh, in, its uh, Fed funds target. That is, it should tighten money to combat the inflation that was already occurring. But the consensus that came out of this uh, was, we're going to try to hold the Fed funds target uh, rate at 2%. We're going to try to stick to that at a time where we know in retrospect that was un- impossible that if anything, uh, rates uh, were going to decline by hook or by crook. And the worst thing the Fed could do was to try to prevent them from doing that at that time. So I think that if I had to put my finger on it, it would be this prosaic error of misunderstanding how uh, misleading a, an inflation rate can be as an indicator of the stance of policy. I'm, I'm in line with market monetarists and others who say that what the Fed ultimately should be concerned about is the the overall rate of spending in the economy, nominal GDP or some other such figure. The problem, of course, is those those statistics are not as uh, frequent or as reliable as inflation statistics. Still, uh, with all the cracks that were developing in the economy, by, certainly by October 2008, uh, I think it was uh, very unfortunate that the that the hawks got uh, uh, all the influence that they got. I think this was the big mistake. Whether it's part of a broader misunderstanding of how the economy works, that's a good question, but I don't have a ready answer for it. Is that it? Okay, well, thank you all very much. I appreciate it.